Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. When I started the series on Zephaniah, I said it was important because the subject of the book is the day of the Lord. Matter of fact, that might not mean much to us. We don't walk around talking about the day of the Lord, but the Bible does, especially in the Old Testament, and it does it a lot. It's so important that out of the 66 books of the Bible, two of them have as their subject the day of the Lord. One is Joel, and the other is Zephaniah. Now, uh, if you understand the Bible in its total context, this is a very important subject. So I thought, uh, since it's important from a biblical point of view, and this is a Bible study, that you needed to know somewhere along the line a little bit about the day of the Lord. So we, there are three chapters in this book, and so far I've covered chapters 1, 2, and the first part of 3. In this session, we're going to finish the book. I have explained thus far that the day of the Lord sounds like it all happens in a single day. But the minute you start seeing what happens on the day of the Lord, you quickly realize that it's not a day at all, it's a period of time. Furthermore, it is evident that the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. So that in the book of Zephaniah, the Lord pronounces judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom in ancient Israel. Then he pronounces judgment on the nations around Judah, north, east, south, and west. And then he pronounces judgment on Jerusalem. So the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. And in some cases, the day of the Lord has already been fulfilled. Those judgments that he mentions have been fulfilled. So you might get the impression thus far that the day of the Lord is the day God visits the earth in judgment, and that would be accurate. It wouldn't be, however, the complete picture. There's more to the picture. For one thing, some of the judgments that are mentioned in the day of the Lord have not been fulfilled. So obviously there is a future aspect to the day of the Lord. And I pointed out that even though the day of the Lord is repeatedly referred to in the Old Testament, it's only mentioned a few times in the New Testament, and it's very evident in the one passage we looked at in 1 Thessalonians 5, that it's still future, even from the standpoint of the New Testament. So to define the day of the Lord as the day the Lord visits the earth in judgment is accurate. Uh, that was fulfilled to some degree in ancient times, but it's not the whole story. 
The whole story is there's future judgment to come in the day of the Lord. The Lord's going to still judge nations uh, in the future. But that's not the whole story. There's another aspect to the day of the Lord that is mentioned in the scripture. And it's the fact that the Lord will visit the earth not only to judge the earth, but also to bless the earth. So the complete picture of the day of the Lord would be a statement like this. It's the day the Lord visits the earth to either judge it or bless it. And what really gets fascinating is that blessing part is still future. So what's that like in the future? This is as up-to-date and even beyond-to-date as the paper, because this is telling us what's going to come in the future. To answer that, we have to go back to the book of Zephaniah. So turn with me to that little book. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. To the little book of Zephaniah. If you don't know where it is, look at the table of contents in the beginning of your Bible. Find out what page it's on. uh, And turn to Zephaniah. I'm going to begin at verse 8 of chapter 3. And I'm going to go through the whole book. Now, before we start, let me tell you this. I'm going to go through these verses, and I'm going to explain them. When I get to the end, I'm going to explain the significance of these verses uh, to us, and to, for that matter, understanding all of Scripture. So this is really an important and critical concept in understanding the Bible, understanding prophecy, and understanding things that are about to happen. So, let's begin with verse 8. Therefore, uh, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day, there it is, I will rise up plunderer. My determination is to gather the nations, my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger. All the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now, I'll uh, read the rest of the passage in a minute, but I want to stop here and just point out a couple of things. Number one, he mentions the day. Now, That's shorthand for the day of the Lord. Uh, It's referred to as that day, the day, or the full phrase, the day of the Lord. So that's a clue that we're talking about the day of the Lord. The other thing I would point out, that this is clearly a description of judgment. So this is the first half of the day of the Lord that I mentioned a minute ago. What's really different is now he says, I will pour out my fierce anger on all the earth. All the earth will be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Now that has never happened. 
that drives Bible teachers to the conclusion that this is talking about a future event and it's a future judgment. In the context of the book, this is addressed to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And he's saying, wait, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, he's saying, wait until the day when he will gather all the nations together, and this verse says, to plunder the earth with the fire, I mean, to plunder them, I'm sorry, to pour out his indignation on them and devour them with the fire of his jealousy. So there are three things that are mentioned here that he's going to do to the whole earth. He's going to plunder them, which means they're going to be conquered. He's going to pour out his indignation on them and devour them. So his fiery zeal is the idea, will devour all nations because the world again became thoroughly corrupt. I think uh, this happened before. Remember the book of Genesis talked about the days of Noah and they were just totally corrupt. Every thought was on evil continually. Remember that? Well, this is sort of the kind of idea that's going here. But because this has never happened, this is a reference to future judgment. The Lord is going to judge the earth in the future. Now, I've pointed out what is obvious from the verse, but what I'd like to do is quote what some other Bible teachers have said about this passage. And I'm going to do this because I want you to get the feel and the flavor of what they see when they come to this verse. Some of this is real interesting. Uh, a pastor who was a great Bible teacher in the 19th century said, in its full sense, the prophecy seems to belong to the same events of the last struggle of the Antichrist at the close of Joel. Ah, interesting. The Antichrist comes during what we call the period of the tribulation. So way back in the 19th century, a Bible teacher read this passage and says, wow, that sounds for all the world like what's going to happen in the book of Revelation when the Antichrist is here. One of my theology professors in the seminary I attended has written, quote, this verse will be fulfilled in the tribulation, climaxing at Armageddon. Ah, it's future, and they are seeing it as fulfilled in the tribulation. Another Bible teacher says, the great outpouring of divine wrath on the earth predicted here will take place during the tribulation before our Lord returns to set up his kingdom. Now that's an interesting uh, comment because the verse says, I will pour out my indignation, all my fierce anger. Now, the book of Revelation describes the tribulation period as God pouring out his wrath. I talked about that last time. It's in Revelation chapter 6. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So the, it doesn't use the word wrath in our translation, but it uses indignation 
and fierce anger. And this professor picked up on, ah, that's the wrath of the tribulation period. One more. Another professor. The prophet concludes the judgment portion of his prophecy by reverting to the universal theme with which he introduced the section. He began with a summary statement of universal judgment. That's back in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Then he delineated God's judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. That's chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 2, verse 3. And on the nations. That's chapter 2, verses 4 to 15. Then, for emphasis, he repeats the judgment on Jerusalem in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. Now, he ends this long section of another general subject of universal judgment. In the Lord's impending universal judgment on the nations, his cup of wrath was about to be poured out at that time. His grace would take second place to his anger. At the end of the yet future tribulation, God will come to the nation's armies to assemble, uh, to assemble toward Jerusalem, and in the battle of Armageddon, he will pour out on them his wrath, all his fierce anger, and the fire of his jealous anger. End of quote. Now, all of a sudden, it begins to become a little more relevant. The Old Testament repeatedly, not just in Zephaniah and Job, but repeatedly talks about the day of the Lord, or that day. And uh, many Bible teachers who've studied this in great detail have concluded that is the tribulation period. Did you know the tribulation was called the day of the Lord before we started all this? Probably not. All right, this verse really puts that in focus. So the first point in this passage is the future judgment. The second point is there's a future blessing. Look at verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 8. <laughs> I'll get there in a minute. Verse 9. All right, trying to get ahead of myself. Zephaniah 3.9. For then I will restore to the people a pure language that they may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Now, in verse 8, it's judgment, which is on all the earth, so that hasn't happened. And then he says, I'm going to restore the people with a pure language. So, Apparently, after the judgment of the tribulation, the Lord will restore a pure language. Now, what does that mean? Well, as the rest of the verse explains, I think it means that the inhabitants of the earth will call on him and serve him with one accord. And as one commentator pointed out, the... Pure language or pure lips presuppose a pure heart. So God's going to judge the earth, and yet, apparently, a large number of people are going to be converted 
and they are going to serve the Lord. So, as one said, uh, the nations formerly perverted by the blasphemy of serving idols will be cleansed by God for true worship. So this part of the future picture will not be fulfilled until what is called the millennium. Now, the book of Revelation explains that there's coming a time of tribulation. We know, by the way, from Daniel chapter 9, that period is seven years. Then in Revelation chapter 19, the Lord comes back. And Revelation chapter 20 says he's going to reign on the earth for a thousand years. Now that's very simple, very clear from the book of Revelation. So what theologians have done is they've come along and they looked at that and they said, well, that's too simple. We've got to make it complicated. So uh, we're going to call that the millennium. It's just a Latin word that means a thousand. So uh, you want it in theological terms? Seven years of tribulation, a thousand years of blessing. And the way this is laid out, the implication is that there's going to be judgment and then the Lord is going to bring people to himself and they're going to, he's going to reign for a thousand years. So this verse indicates that everyone living on the earth at the beginning of the millennium will be believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, it has been suggested um, that this is the reversal of Babel. Pure language. So what happened at Babel? They tried to reach God and he confused their language. So we're going to reverse that. And they're going to have a pure language that comes from a pure heart so they can praise the Lord and serve him. So there's going to be the restoration of the nations. That's verse 9. Now look at verse 10. From beyond the rivers of the Euphrates, my worshipers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offerings. Now, what's that talking about? He's talking about his people, his dispersed ones. Who might that be? The Jewish people. He dispersed them because of their idolatry. So what he is saying is in verse 8, he's going to restore the nations. And in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 10, did I say that right? In verse 9, he's going to restore the nations. In verse 10, he's going to have the return of Israel. That's what this verse is saying. And that's my dispersed ones is the clue. Now, he mentions he's going to bring them back from Ethiopia uh, beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, that in, would include southern Egypt and Sudan and northern Ethiopia. The rivers of Ethiopia were probably the Nile and its uh, tributaries. Um, that was the edge of the known world at the time this was written. The descendants of the dispersed ones will bring offerings from the furthest corners of the earth. So the Jews are said to come back to Jerusalem. 
the city the Lord chose to place his name there, according to the Old Testament. Now, look at verse 11. In that day, stop. What does that tell you? That's shorthand for the day of the Lord. And now the day of the Lord includes, in the future, not only the tribulation, but also the millennium. All right. Look at the rest of verse 11. In that day you shall not be ashamed of any of your deeds in which your transgressions against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. So, in the context, this day, in that day, is the millennium. And what he's saying is that Israel will not be ashamed of their sinful deeds because God will remove the proud so that they will no longer be haughty people among the people of Jerusalem. Now, I remember a minute ago I said, God dispersed them because of their idolatry. Now he says, I'm going to bring you back. And you don't have to be ashamed of that. I'm going to cleanse you up. So uh, a feeling of shame comes from the awareness of guilt. But they will not have any guilt any longer because they will be humble rather than proud. So this is the spiritual work that God is going to do in the millennium. Keep reading. Verse 12. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. So, he is, I think what he's saying here is these people are going to be righteous in contrast to the wickedness that they had before they were scattered to the ends of the earth. So God's holy hill, Jerusalem, will be inhabited by pure, meek and humble people who trust the Lord. Now, I'm picking out little phrases from these verses. They're going to be pure, meek, and humble. And they're going to serve the Lord in the millennium. Verse 13, The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and shall speak no lies nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. So, two things here. Number one, instead of the deceit and the lies and the idolatry uh, that caused them to be scattered from the land, he's going to bring them back. That's verse 10. They're going to be there in righteousness, and they're going to be there in peace. So as a result of being meek and humble and trusting, Israel will be a righteous people who, not, who do not do unrighteous things like telling lies and practicing deceit. They will be like a flock of sheep grazing and lying down, unafraid and undisturbed. In their cleansed condition, they will find peace and security, no longer defiled. They, in short, these will be 
those who are left will be humble and meek, trusting in the name of the Lord and living righteously. When the Creator is worshipped and served as He ought, there will be paradise regained. So, he's talking about the millennium, and he's saying it's going to be a time of righteousness and peace. Could we do with some of that? You know, uh, <laughs> I um, years ago had a sermon in which I talked about this aspect of prophecy, and it occurred to me some might think this is fantasy. You know, you're dreaming. You look at the world we live in today and you think, could there ever be righteousness and peace? Are you kidding me? And then it dawned on me. If you know anything at all about philosophy and literature and the history of the world, this is the very thing people have always dreamed of a utopia, uh, a better earth, isn't it? Isn't it what we dreamed that would have come to pass? Well, let me just say, there will be no peace until the prince of peace comes back. And that's what this is describing. Peace and righteousness. Now, let me tell you what that's going to prove. There's some great stuff here. I want you to look at verse 14. Sing, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughters of Jerusalem. Isn't this interesting? We're going to have righteousness, peace, and now we're going to have joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. That's the kind of stuff the Lord produces. So, in light of the future blessings, the citizens of Jerusalem will sing, shout, be glad, and rejoice. One commentator says, Israel will be joyful in that millennial day because she will have been redeemed by God. Though the immediate process for the nation was one of sorrow and torment, a day will come when the remnant Fears will give away to shouts of praise. And another looking at this verse said, although the command is aimed at the future Jerusalem, no doubt the message would have not been lost on the godly worshipers of Zephaniah's own day. In other words, this is clearly talking about the future, because Israel hasn't done this yet. But... But uh, you can't read this without picking up on these concepts of righteousness, peace, and joy. We have uh, a taste of that now. The whole earth will experience it when the Lord comes back. That's what this is saying. By the way, uh, I've spent my life studying the Bible and what I'm about to point out, I've bumped into time and time again. I've even joked about it in sermons. I've joked about the fact that preachers have three points, you know? Uh, well, 
There are three points all over the place in the Bible. I mean, it's just all over. I just bump into it time and time and time again. Matter of fact, in studying the New Testament, I constantly bumped in all three, into all three members of the Trinity, one way or another in the same passage. Well, one observant Bible student pointed out that there were triplets in this passage, like meek, humble, and trusting in verse 12, unrighteousness, lies, and deceits in verse 13, and joy be glad uh, in... Uh, Shout, be glad, in verses 14. So one said, very remarkable, throughout these verses in the use of the number three, secretly conveying to the thoughtful and the, uh, the thought of him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, undivided trinity, by whose operation these things shall be. I just thought it was interesting to point out they're, they're triplets in the scripture, all the time. And this author thought maybe that was a subtle indication of the Trinity. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but I can tell you there are triplets all over the place. Verse 15, the Lord has taken away your judgments. He has cast out your enemy, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall see the disaster no more. So Israel will have a lot to shout about, including the removal of God's judgment, the casting out of God's enemy, and the presence of the king of Israel, the Lord himself. Did you see that? Did you see that? That clearly stated in verse 15. All of this is going to be possible because the Lord is going to come back, clearly. This, explained, this is explained. In the book of Revelation, tribulation, second coming, then the Lord is here, and all of these benefits follow because he, he is here. Uh, so, keep reading. Verse 16, in that day, here it is again, it shall be to Jerusalem, do, it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, Zion, let your hands be let not your hands be weak. So again, we're talking about the millennium, the rule and reign of Christ on the earth after the second coming. And he's saying, don't fear. Uh, don't be weak. The Lord is going to be here. Verse 17, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one, will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. What a phrase. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He will quiet you with his love. Maybe when you get all perturbed and disturbed and anxious, maybe you should just sit down and think about the fact that the Lord loves us. Amen. And the love will quiet our hearts. Amen. What a concept. The Hebrew translated love in this passage is the one used of the passionate love of Jacob for Rachel. It's used of um, Jacob's love for Joseph. Of Jonathan's deep friendship with David of God's love for his people in Hosea chapter 3. 
It is a love that cannot be contained. It burst forth in singing. The nations will again be the object of God's great love, not his wrath. Remember how this passage began? He's going to pour out his wrath. And then after his wrath, he will pour out his love and quiet them with his love. What a thought. Someone has said, the daughter of Zion has much to sing and shout and rejoice about. Not only have her enemies been thrown out, but the Messiah King, the Lord himself, is right in her midst. There is no need to be weak or fear because God the Mighty One will quiet her with his love. We can find hope in times of difficulty. We can focus on God's power, God's deliverance, and God's love. He is our King, our Savior, our Beloved. So, he's talking about he's going to regather Israel. They're going to be righteous. There's going to be peace. And there's going to be rejoicing. One more. Look at verse 18. In the rest of the passage, he's going to talk about the regathering of Israel. He says, I will gather those who sorrow over the appointed assembly, who are among you in whom its approach is a burden. Sorrow over the appointed assembly is a reference to those who lived far from Jerusalem, being sorry because they were not able to attend one of the annual feast days appointed by the Mosaic law. They were reproached by their fellow Jews for their lack of attendance. The Lord says that in the millennium, he will enable them to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. So instead of reproach and sorrow of missing the appointed assemblies, the exiles will be granted the privilege of praising the Lord in Jerusalem. Now, this produces a little bit of an interesting observation. Does that mean that when the Lord comes back and sets up the millennium, the Jews are going to return to observing the ancient feast as spelled out in the Mosaic Law? This verse seems to indicate that, and so does the book of Ezekiel, chapters 45 and even 46, that huge section, uh, seems to indicate that the annual feast in Jerusalem uh, will be kept during the millennium. Now, that poses a problem. Why would the Lord restore religious practices that have been fulfilled? And one author says, possibly as a means of teaching Israel the meaning of the doctrine of salvation through Jesus Christ. In other words, this will be something like the Lord's table. If they were symbols to begin with, and Israel will go back and observe the feast. A couple of more verses. Verse 19. Behold, at the time, 
I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather those who are driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. So, in the millennium, the Lord will deal with those who afflicted Israel. He'll save the lame. He'll gather those who were driven out of the land and appoint praise uh, in every land where they were put to shame. Then verse 19 says, at that, I mean, yeah, verse 20, and at that time, I will bring you back, even at that time, I will gather you, I will gather you, uh, I will give you fame and peace among the peoples of the earth. When I return to your captivity before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, as I mentioned a few verses ago, at the end of the passage, all the verses are pertaining just to the regathering of Israel. And in the context, it's that day when uh, all this happens, and that's the day of the Lord, and this hasn't happened yet. So, this is teaching that in the millennium, when the Lord regathers them, he will give them fame and praise and a good reputation over all the world. In other words, in the millennium, Israel will possess her land as God promised. Remember Genesis? He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they would have the land of Palestine. Well, they got kicked out in 605 598, 586 B.C., and three waves of uh, attacks by the Babylonians. They got kicked out. They hadn't been back in the land from that point until 1948. And they don't occupy the whole land till this day. But God promised it to them. So what this passage and many others are teaching is the Lord's going to come back and he's going to give them the land. So God will be faithful to his promise. As a matter of fact, seven times in these concluding verses, I mean 18 through 20, the Lord said, I will. He wants to place a strong hope before the remnant in Zephaniah's day. Since his judgment was imminent and his restoration uh, was remote. So he wants to just assure them, I will. And he says, I will, over and over and over again. All right. We made it through the passage. Did you, did you get it? How are we doing? All right. Let me uh, sum it up. If I were going to sum up all these verses, I'd say it like this. In the millennium, the Lord will restore the nations, regather Israel, and abundantly bless her. Now, I said I was going to explain all these verses, and then I was going to um, uh, talk about this for a minute. So I'm going to do that. Um, this is called Bible study. So we're going to do some Bible study. We just did. Okay? Let me explain something. This is not unusual. I mean, I've chosen a short book 
and this is a short passage, but the Old Testament is full of this. It's full, especially the prophets, uh, it's full of judgment and ends with blessing. And passage after passage, that's called the day of the Lord. Now, what do you do with that? So I want to back off for a minute, and I want to talk about Bible study. Here are your options. Number one, you can look at all these passages and say, they've already been fulfilled. There are Bible teachers who say that. Now let me ask you a question. You've heard me explain this one short passage, and there are many of them. Would you say what we looked at has already been fulfilled? Not even close. But that's one option, and that's what some say. Here's a second option. Well, this is hyperbole. We're speaking in exaggerated terms, but it was fulfilled. Another possibility is they say, well, it's figurative language, and it's fulfilled in the church. By the way, that's a, a point of view. And the people who take that point of view say, um, there's not going to be a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. All that's figurative language. And they get to the book of Revelation and say, well, it's just full of symbols, and the millennium is a symbol, and all this is filled figuratively in the church. And they are called amillennialists. You put A in front of a word in Greek, and it means no. So a theist is somebody who believes in God. An atheist says there's no God. Well, a millennialist says there's a millennial, and an amillennialist says there is no millennial. And the way they arrive at that is they look at passages like this and say it's all figurative language, and it's fulfilled. God's blessed us with righteousness and peace. That's all they do with it. Now, there's another option, and that is that you just take it at face value. Now, the people who do that, and I'm in that crowd, say, the others say, well, you're just taking it literally. Guilty. Uh, they say, well, yeah, but there's figurative language in the Bible. Obviously, there's figurative language in the Bible. Just because you take it literally doesn't mean you deny that. As a matter of fact, figurative language has literal meaning. Jesus said, I'm the door. Is that figurative language? But of course. What's the literal meaning? He's the entranceway. So, just because there's figurative language in the Bible doesn't mean that you shouldn't find the literal meaning. I prefer to say, I just take it at face value. You've got to be a theologian with preconceived ideas to mess this passage up. If you're just a simple believer who comes and reads the passage, you conclude, that ain't happened yet. Pardon my grammar. Right? And you conclude, wow, then that day isn't here yet. And that's the way I take the passage. And that's a lot 
of the Old Testament. Just go read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, as well as the minor prophets. It's all in the prophets. It's there. All right. Are we going to take it at face value? You ready to do that? All right. So let's take it at face value. Then what? What do we conclude for us out of this? Well, I would say two things. Number one, if you understand this passage in the context of the whole Bible, one of the conclusions you have to come to is this passage is teaching God is faithful. He promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he would give their descendants the land of Israel, and he, by cracky, is going to do it. Hadn't done it yet, but he's going to do it. By the way, I heard this week something I'd never heard before. The city of Jerusalem has only been the capital of one nation ever. Other nations have occupied Israel, but it's never been their capital. The only nation that's ever had the land and its capital was Jerusalem is Israel. And the Lord's going to come back and fulfill the rest that he promised. So let me make a second observation. And that is that if you take this passage at face value, then you have to conclude that in the future there is coming a judgment and then there's coming a millennium. And that's because we know the book of Revelation. Right? And that a lot of the Bible does that. I talked last time about the fact that uh, the rapture occurs before the tribulation. Matter of fact, Paul says that. First Thessalonians chapter 4, he says the rapture is coming, we're going to be taken out of here, and I don't need to explain the time because you know the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night and sudden destruction shall come upon them. And it's judgment, not blessing. And that's a time of wrath, he says. So we're out of here before that takes place. And then he comes back and sets up his kingdom. So it's all future. So the one thing I'd like to glean out of this passage is that the future ought to affect the present. Make sense? If you know the future, and you know the Lord's coming back, and we're going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, and we're going to be blessed as a result of the judgment. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and every all of us are going to have praise. Okay? So if you know the future, that ought to determine how you behave in the present, right? I mean, if you were a student and you knew that at the end of this semester there was going to be a final exam, would that sort of affect or should sort of affect the way you studied during the semester? Well, of course. Now, I find this very, very fascinating for this reason. If you study psychology, and there's some interesting stuff in psychology, I'm not knocking it, I'm just pointing out 
What, does, what do psychologists want to do? They want to explain your behavior by looking at the past. Sigmund Freud started that. Uh, popularized it. And that is, if you want to understand what you're doing as an adult, you need to go back and look at what you were like at age five. He called it the Oedipus Complex. And the Oedipus Complex that you went through when you were five years old determines how you behave when you're an adult. Now, I've spent a little time studying that stuff, and I'm here to tell you He's just nuts. <laughs> because what he said, the Oedipus complex, is when you were five years old, you wanted to go to bed with your mother and kill your father. That's what he said. That's the Oedipus complex. That's just crazy. That's just that's in, that's nuts. Now, but but the people who came after him dismissed that. But they still wanted to say, well, it's your family of origin that determines a lot of what you do in adult life. Now, that just happens, in my opinion, to be true. If you forget the Oedipus complex, train up a child in the way he'll go, and when he is old, he will follow that path. Do our parents influence us more than we are aware? So you want to explain your present behavior. What do you do? Look in your past? Yep. That, there's some truth to that. But what does the Bible do? Does the Bible ever tell you to look at your past? No, as a matter of fact, the Bible says forgetting those things which are behind. What does the Bible do? At the time it was written, someone has said, 25% of the Bible was prophecy. At the time it was written, 25% was prophecy. What's happening? God wants you to look in the future. And that ought to determine the way you live in the present. The Lord's coming back. We stand before the judgment seat of Christ and there's blessing. That ought to determine how we live today. Amen? Amen. Amen. Martin Luther once said, there are two days in my calendar. This day and that day. That says it all. Father, thank you for telling us about that day. Constantly remind us so that we will live in light of that day. In Jesus' name, amen.